Welcome to the Jesus Chronicles. I'm your host, Sandy Laws, and this is episode number eight. Congratulations! Assuming you listened to the first seven episodes, and I grant you that is a big assumption, you now know a great deal more about the birth of Jesus. Well, in the last episode, I talked about Matthew's version of the nativity story and how it differed from Luke's. Matthew's Jewishness permeates his account of the story as he builds the case for why Jesus is the chosen one, the Messiah, spoken about by the prophets long ago in the Old Testament. So many things can be said about the birth of Jesus, but the one big takeaway for me was how truly unique his conception and birth were, leading me to the conclusion that Jesus was unlike any other person who ever lived. The birth story in all its grandeur points to the humanity of Jesus, but also to his divine nature. Well, on the Jesus Chronicles, I'm following the life of Jesus in chronological order. And series one was all about the story of his birth. What comes next for this podcast is series two. This will be the beginning of the story of Jesus as an adult. In the second series, I'll tell you about the first year of Jesus's public ministry from about 26 to 27 AD. I hope you will keep listening as I walk through well-known and notable stories about Jesus, including his baptism, his temptation by Satan, the miracle at the wedding at Cana, and his encounters with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. So check out series two of the Jesus Chronicles, available on my website at www.thejesuschronicles.org or Spotify. In this episode, I'm concluding series one with a fun and detailed look at the history of Christmas. Well, have you ever wondered how the Christmas celebration became what it is today? Well, I'm gonna tell ya. Christmas begins with winter. I love Christmas. My husband, Rich and I do all the traditional things that Americans do for Christmas decorate the house inside and out, throw a party, go to parties, watch holiday movies, listen to holiday music, shop like crazy for presents, observe Advent, and have all the kids home for Christmas Day. We just hang around and eat and talk, and of course we also go to church. It's just so much fun. As a Christian, I was curious about why Christmas isn't just a Christian holiday. In other words, if you're not a Christian, why celebrate a holiday centered around the birth of Jesus? I felt kind of sad, like the culture was absconding our sacred Christmas holiday and exploiting it by focusing on gift giving. Well, then I found out the truth. And that is what I'm gonna talk about in this episode, the truth about Christmas. As you know, the Christian church was born in Israel, but within a few centuries, its headquarters became centered in Rome and Constantinople, 
a northern shift. Then Christianity began to spread throughout Europe. As it moved north, winter became a factor. Winter in the northern hemisphere is cold, dark, and long. In order to cope with this long and dreary season, many European civilizations developed winter festivals. You know, a reason to bust out of the house, get together with other people instead of being cooped up, share some food, stories, have a few glasses of wine. Well, not all winter festivals were celebrated in December, but typically between early November and early January. The Roman calendar is what we go by now, celebrating the new year on January 1st. But hundreds of centuries ago, there were many occasions to mark a new year, such as when the harvest was in and the farmers had leisure time, or at the winter solstice when daylight once again began to lengthen. But the most notable of the winter festivals was the Roman festival of Saturnalia. Saturnalia began roughly two centuries before the birth of Jesus. It was kind of an agricultural harvest slash festival. The Roman god Saturn was viewed as an agricultural god. And every December 17th, a sacrifice was offered to Saturn in the Roman Forum. Of course, if you're going to the Roman Forum for a festival, there would be plenty of feasting and partying. The event would last anywhere from three to seven days. It was a national holiday. No one worked. People decorated their houses with laurels, green trees and shrubs that were illuminated by candles and lamps. People had big parties with lots of food and drinks. People exchanged small gifts such as candles and clay dolls and wax fruit. It all sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? This festa also gained a reputation as an excuse for bad behavior, given the excessive amount of partying that went on. Well, here's the thing. Once the idea of a birthday celebration for Jesus took hold, it encountered and eventually co-mingled with the already established festivals, like the Saturnalia Festival. So how did Christmas finally get started? The answer is slowly. It took a while for the early church to even acknowledge the birth of Jesus. The Apostle Paul's only reference to the birth of Jesus is in the book of Galatians. Instead, the early church was an Easter-centered religion. The death and resurrection of Jesus were at the center of the early Christian message. Not only did the early church give Jesus' birthday minimal attention, the fact is that the early church had no idea the month or the day it had occurred. Perhaps when Luke met Mary, she told him the date of Jesus' birth but he neglected to put it in his account. Perhaps she didn't tell him the date. Mary and Joseph were poor people, so the births of their children would not have been recorded. So how did the church land on the date 
of December 25th as the day to celebrate the birth of Jesus. I'll tell you that next. It begins with the festival of Epiphany. Sometime around the end of the second century AD, no one knows exactly when, the Eastern Orthodox Church initiated a feast day on January 6th called Epiphany. The origin of this feast is sketchy. We just don't know a lot about it. To a great extent, scholars are just making educated guesses when it comes to the beginnings of Epiphany. But it does have a tie to the beginnings of Christmas, and that's why I'm talking about it. The word epiphany is a Greek word, and it means manifestation or showing forth. In this context, it is referring to how Jesus was revealed or made manifest to the world as the Son of God. Various epiphanies about Jesus could be included in this idea, such as his baptism, when the Holy Spirit descended on him and God declared him to be his son. I'll talk more about that in episode number nine. Or when Jesus performed miracles, such as turning the water into wine at the wedding in Canaan and the feeding of the 5,000. Also included as an epiphany is the Magi story, the story I told you about because their presence and the fact that they brought him the kingly array of presents symbolizes the world's recognition of Jesus as the Son of God. So by the third century AD, the festival of Epiphany had become a widely observed day among the Eastern Orthodox Christians. And by the fourth century, the nativity story, the miracle of the birth of Jesus, had become an increasingly central theme of the Epiphany celebration. The Roman Church, or Catholic Church, did not start observing the birth of Jesus until sometime in the 4th century. There is some indication that the celebration of his birth began during the reign of Constantine, or shortly thereafter. There is a calendar from 354 A.D., that lists the dates of the birth of Jesus as December 25th. There is no explanation as to why that date was chosen for the calendar, but it might have had something to do with the festivals that were already in place. That led scholars to believe that in some way, Christmas on the 25th of December was an effort to compete with the rival Roman religions, or a way to co-opt the winter celebrations to help spread Christianity, or even to baptize the winter festivals with Christian meaning. So by 354 AD, or shortly thereafter, the Roman Church recognized the date of Jesus' birth as December 25th. Of course, this date then became fixed, and the Eastern Orthodox Church felt pressure to adopt it as the official date of Jesus' birth. And they agreed to do that, but only if the Catholic Church, the Roman Church, would adopt the Epiphany celebration on January 6th. 
567 AD, the Council of Trent proclaimed that the entire period between Christmas and Epiphany should be considered a celebration, creating what we now know as the 12 days of Christmas. So now you know the rest of the story. After this, Christians gradually added this period of time called Advent. Advent is a time of spiritual preparation leading up to Christmas. For Catholics and Protestants alike, Advent begins on the Sunday closest to November 30th and extends up to and includes the day before Christmas. All right, so I covered how the early church came up with the date for Christmas. It's kind of sad that it isn't the actual date of Jesus' birth, but it's also good that a date was fixed so that we can celebrate his birth every year. The next question is this, how did Christmas morph into what it is today? Well, one way to explain it is to think of Christmas as a snowball. As Christmas has continued to roll through the ages, a lot of things have become a part of this massive event that we call Christmas. There are a lot of traditions that we can talk about, but I'm gonna just focus on two. The Christmas tree and the story of St. Nicholas, also known as Santa Claus. Oh, Christmas tree. I love a real Christmas tree. Rich goes out and cuts one down every year in the National Forest, west of Denver. You pay $10 for a permit and you can cut down two trees from a designated area. It helps to keep the forest healthy. Well, Germany generally gets the credit for introducing the tree to the Christmas scene. The first recorded mention of a public Christmas tree is in Bremen, Germany in 1570 and in Basel in 1597. Various accounts in the 1600s describe trees in homes. By the 1800s, the German nobility had embraced Christmas trees. Since royal families promoted intermarriage as a means of cementing diplomatic relationships, German nobility brought Christmas trees into their new homes. In the early 1800s, there were scattered indication of Christmas trees in the U.S. By the 1840s and 1850s, the number of Christmas trees in homes had begun to explode. At the turn of the century, Christmas trees could be found in nearly every home and in the White House, too. Large public trees started to show up at the same time. The first national tree appeared on the south lawn of the White House in 1923. And the first tree at Rockefeller Center appeared in 1933. So there you have it. There's a short history of the Christmas tree. Now let's talk about Santa Claus. About Santa Claus and St. Nicholas. The biggest inclusion into the Christmas celebration came in the form of a downgraded saint 
who morphed into a tiny present-giving elf. I am, of course, talking about St. Nicholas and his cultural counterpart, Santa Claus. St. Nicholas probably was a real person, but we know very little about him. Despite that, he has become one of the most beloved saints in the history of Christianity, with endless stories about him. This Catholic encyclopedia entry about Nicholas captures the legends about him. Quote, Though he is one of the most popular saints in the Greek, as well as the Latin church, there is scarcely anything historically certain about him, except for that he was the Bishop of Myra in the 4th century. Some of the main points in his legend are as follows. He was born in Patera, a city in Lycia in Asia Minor. In his youth, he made a pilgrimage to Egypt and Palestine. Shortly after his return, he became the Bishop of Myra. Cast into prison during the persecution of Diocletian, he was released after the ascension of Constantine and was present at the Council of Nicaea." End quote. And that, folks, is it. In fact, so little is known about St. Nicholas that he was demoted in the Catholic Church, and his designated feast day is considered to be optional, along with 90 other minor saints. Some scholars have even suggested that Nicholas never existed, but with all the hoopla surrounding his name through the centuries, it makes more sense that there is some grain of truth about his existence. Many, many tales exist about him, but there is one best-known story that gives us a glimpse into the idea of St. Nicholas and Santa Claus as we know them today. Here's that story. A poor widower who lived during the time of St. Nicholas feared for the future of his three daughters. He could not provide a dowry for his daughters, and that meant that they probably wouldn't find a husband, or even worse, that they would be sold into slavery. Nicholas was the only child of a wealthy parents, and he wanted to distribute his wealth to those in need. He learned of the poor widower's dilemma and wanted to help. One evening, while everyone in the house was asleep, he dropped a bag of gold through a window in their home, allowing the oldest daughter to marry. Sometime later, he did the same thing for the second daughter. When Nicholas arrived to deliver the third bag of gold, the widower was waiting, eager to learn who the secret benefactor was. Nicholas swore the father to secrecy, saying that all of the thanks should go to God alone. If you look at images of St. Nicholas from long ago, you will see him holding three gold balls, representing the three bags of gold he gave to the widower's daughters. The devotion to Nicholas spread throughout the early Christian world. As time went by, he was often also portrayed as an authority figure because 
his nighttime visits brought rewards to children who were good and a lump of coal to those who were not. It is in the United States where St. Nicholas morphed into Santa Claus. It all happened in New York City. There, a wealthy merchant and philanthropist got the ball rolling. His name was John Pintard, and he saw St. Nicholas as a symbol of the, his Dutch roots. Pintard held an annual St. Nicholas Day dinner on December 6th, beginning in 1810. The St. Nicholas snowball was gaining some momentum. The second prominent New Yorker responsible for the creation of Santa Claus was Washington Irving. He was a popular author and he wrote stories about St. Nicholas, saying that St. Nicholas flew over trees in a horse-pulled wagon and that he slid down chimneys to deliver his gifts. The third New Yorker to stoke the Santa Claus frenzy was Clement Clark Moore. He is the generally accepted author of the famous poem, The Night Before Christmas. Clement, who was acquainted with both Pintard and Irving, wrote the poem for his children. He would recite it from memory for his family each Christmas. Eventually, someone sent a copy of it to the Sentinel newspaper in 1823, where it was first published. It was reprinted each year, and by the 1830s, it really took off. We can identify a number of firsts in Moore's famous poem. His poem was the first to place Santa in a sleigh with reindeer, and it was the first to give the reindeer's names. No one had any idea where the idea of the reindeer came from. No portrayal of St. Nicholas in Europe had associated him with reindeer. Now, I know you know this poem. Literally, everybody knows some part of it. It's like the most famous poem ever written. In the poem, St. Nicholas came with his gifts on Christmas Eve. So it shifts the date of St. Nicholas gift giving from December 6th to Christmas Eve. Also in the poem, St. Nicholas loses his bishop robes and instead becomes a cute, lovable little elf. Remember, the poem references his miniature sleigh, his eight tiny reindeer. He was a little old driver with a droll little mouth and a right jolly elf. Now this might explain why he can go up and down chimneys. When Moore's poem was first published as an illustrated book, the illustrations of St. Nicholas looked a little like a scruffy leprechaun. Today, most illustrated children's books of this poem feature images of an adult-sized Santa. But the bottom line is that when Moore wrote The Night Before Christmas, Santa Claus had not yet appeared on the scene in his modern appearance. That happened when a famous illustrator entered the story. Thomas Nast was an illustrator for the New Yorker magazine, and he was the first to draw 
Santa's jolly face, full beard, and wide belt around his rotund waist. Nass drew images of Santa year after year for Harper's Magazine, and he continued to add many of the features of Santa that endure today. For example, he placed Santa at his North Pole headquarters. He made Santa a toy maker in his workshop. He gave Santa elves as assistants. He also gave Santa his giant ledger to record all the children's names. And he also showed snacks left in homes on Christmas Eve for Santa. A picture is worth a thousand words. That's what they say. And through his illustrations, Nast substantially shaped and expanded the Santa folklore. A Commercial Christmas I want to share a few facts about Christmas to enlighten you on how it became such a major commercialized holiday. These are the trends that put us on the path we are on today. First, before the 19th century, gifts weren't the main focus of Christmas. For most of the history of Christmas as a celebration, the focus was on getting together and having a feast. Doesn't that sound nice? If money was spent on Christmas time, it was on food and alcohol, not gifts. But then in the 1700s and 1800s, industrialization led to the rise of the consumer culture. Producing more goods made it important for merchants to create demand through advertising and marketing. Soon enough, merchants began to see the opportunity of using the holidays to promote gift giving. And of course, that included Christmas. Manufactured purchase gifts began to replace homemade gifts in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So the bottom line is that commerce is the real influence that made Christmas the culturally dominant holiday that it is today in the US. This is important to keep in mind. Least we think that we have lost Christmas to the secular culture. William Waits, the author of the book, The Modern Christmas in America, writes this about Christmas. Religion has not played an important role in the emergence of the modern form of the celebration. This may come as a surprise, even a shock, to those who think of Christmas as being predominantly religious. However, in practice, the secular aspects of the celebration, such as gift-giving, the Christmas dinner, and the gathering of family members, have dwarfed its religious aspects in resources spent and in concern given. Now that is very well said. Wrestling with Christmas. Every year we wrestle with Christmas. Let's stop and consider what this review of Christmas tells us. First, Christmas was never a religious holiday solely dedicated to the birth of Jesus. Instead, it's always been a mix of religious and cultural characteristics. If you think the war on Christmas must include stomping out the cultural aspects of the holiday, 
you are engaging in a losing battle. Non-Christians like to celebrate Christmas for the very same reasons that the Romans celebrated Saturnalia. It is a festival time dedicated to eating, drinking, and making merry. Christians do not have, nor have they ever had, ownership of Christmas. However, if you want to make Christmas a more Christian celebration for you and your family, consider creating a Christmas pledge. Make a list of what you think is important to focus on during the Christmas season. I mean, maybe for you, it's about expressing your love to others in a way that does not include giving gifts or participating in the Advent season to prepare your heart for Christmas Day. Maybe it's about examining all of your holiday activities and how they fit into your Christian values or reaching out to those who need help and providing the truly needy with gifts. Maybe it's about joining a church and dedicating yourself to creating a church community. And lastly, most importantly, in my mind, maybe it's about learning more about Jesus and why he came to earth. All of these ideas and many more can make the season of Christmas a much more fulfilling time for you and your family. So Merry Christmas. Next time on the JC. Next time I begin our journey of following Jesus' life as an adult. The entire second series of the JC is dedicated to year one of his public ministry. We begin with his baptism in the Jordan River where all three members of the Holy Trinity make a dramatic appearance. Don't forget to check out my website at www.thejesuschronicles.org where you can download my Bible studies. Thanks for listening.